This is an RNZ podcast. Tēnā koutou katoa, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This week, the Tasman fires. A single spark from a tractor on tinder dry grass ignited New Zealand's biggest bushfire in nearly 75 years. Within hours, firefighters, police and army staff from around the country were sent to Tasman, beginning a battle to extinguish a fire which refused to relent. But as firefighters continue to dampen the hot spots, attention is now turning to the long-term impact on the region. Alex Ashton reflects on the response to the Tasman fire and questions whether New Zealand is ready for a future where fires like this could become more frequent. A large bushfire has broken out west of Wakefield in the Nelson region. Fire and Emergency says it was alerted just after 2 o'clock about smoke on Pigeon Valley Road. It says three In the afternoon of Tuesday, February 5th, the eve of Waitangi Day, News broke of a blaze on the hills near rural Pigeon Valley, southwest of Nelson. Just a week earlier, fire and emergency had warned of extreme fire risk in the area. The scorching summer sun, lack of rain and strong warm winds had created the most dangerous fire conditions in a decade. By nightfall, Pigeon Valley was alight. Fewer than 24 hours later, the fire covered nearly 2,000 hectares. Uh, the smoke became very thick so that, you know, the, the light was very yellow. There were flecks of white ash falling from the sky. And as the flames edged towards people's properties, the first of thousands of evacuations began. The danger was ratcheting up as firefighters battled against the country's biggest bushfire since 1955. As part of the drive to beat back the flames, the biggest ever effort was underway in the skies. As Air New Zealand Flight 8325 descended on Nelson that day, all eyes turned outside to the billows of thick grey smoke coming from the dried-out brown scrub of the hill. The passengers sharing a collective gasp at the scale of a blaze, which had escalated from a spark just a day earlier. As more journalists arrived to report on this major and escalating emergency, RNZ's Ben Strang was in the small community of Wakefield, where the streets were swiftly being covered with a haze of smoke. The light northerly breeze guiding the flames in Pigeon Valley was pushing the smoke into the town, irritating eyes and drying the back of your throat. But visibility was still good, and you could see through the grey haze deep into Pigeon Valley, where pine forest lines the hills before fading to farmland in the flat. One resident had ventured inside the cordon overnight, driving alongside the flames. He described the sparks falling from the fire as like torrential rain on his windshield. People living closer to the fire, like Mark Berthelsen's friends in the southern reaches of Pigeon Valley, didn't want to be anywhere near the flames. We went up to my mates uh, his family up there, so we uh, helped him pick up all his uh, belongings and private sort of thing, materials, documents and all that sort of stuff to help him get out just in case. Are they quite worried about their property then? Oh, it's just a, caca- a precaution, I think. It's not... We don't know. The wind's changed, so you don't know what's going to happen there. It was a familiar tale from those living closer to the fire, and the scale of what was unfolding was becoming increasingly evident. Civil Defence had set up its forward control point in the flats between Teapot and Redwood Valleys. 
Helicopters were constantly flying in and out, refilling their monsoon buckets as they fought to gain control over where the fire would go next. RNZ visual journalist Bex Parsons King went up in a helicopter and saw just how close the fire had come to several homes. It's a huge blaze, you know, the area is so dry and as we got closer, the ground just really turned to black. As the fire grew, it became clear that it needed more resources than local firefighters had and a national management team was flown in to take over, headed by John Sutton. At a public meeting at the Appleby Fire Station, he described to residents just how impressive the work from firefighters was. I think it really is well, well worth uh, recognising that the, the great bunch of uh, firefighters, you know, a lot of them are volunteers that are out there and they do some great work. I saw that where the fires have got right up to the houses, it's even the paint's blistered, yet the houses are still there. Only one house was lost to the fire, a Redwood Valley home, but otherwise firefighters had kept it at bay. Colin Garnett lives in Redwood Valley and decided to stay as the fire edged closer, keeping a close watch on things from the northern ridge of the valley. I'd rigged up some pumps and other things, uh, going to fill the spouting if it came to that, but uh, I was prepared to wait. But I also went and checked that the back paddocks were open, so we had an escape route if we couldn't get out to the road. So I thought it was OK to stay, but nonetheless, we, I did stay up till 4 o'clock before we went to bed, and then Carol took over what? Early on Thursday afternoon, as things had seemed to be under control, the fire breached the perimeter on its eastern flank near Teapot Valley. Large plumes of black and brown smoke rose into the atmosphere, resembling a volcanic eruption. Within a couple of hours, the residents of Teapot Valley Road were being evacuated. I think a lot of it's caution. We're about a couple of k off the fire, but sure, it's jumped the top of the boundary, I believe, and could come down, so... Yeah, it's just dry conditions, and um, we have got dry grass around our place. My parents have been, um, they're in, up in there. We thought we were all sort of safe this morning. Brought animals back and we yeah, sort of come back. Um, unfortunately, no. The neighbour down the road who still hasn't been removed has grabbed my dog but um, we would like to get some personal belongings just to go and relocate for the night because my wife's at work full-time too, so we don't have any gear with us at the moment. The following day, northerly winds had sent the fire raging back towards Pigeon Valley and it had Wakefield in its sights. In the past half hour, more evacuations have been ordered for homes in Pigeon Valley where the fire began. Our reporter Ben Strang is at Pigeon Valley Road. What's happening, Ben? In the past 30 minutes, they've started to evacuate more properties from Pigeon Valley and uh, cars are being prevented from entering the cordon. Uh, we've noticed over the past hour or so that the smoke is getting much thicker and there's more and more ash falling around us. Um, I'm sitting in the car and there's ash coating the front of our car and as soon as we open the door, the ash comes inside and it's all over the seats. Uh, the smell of smoke is very strong here at the moment and it really gets caught in the back of your throat. There are firefighters refilling a, a truck in front of me um, and they're doing so as fast as they can. It's a bit like watching a pit crew during a, a car race. And as I speak, there's a house on the corner here which they've started to fill the spouting with water, so they're a little bit worried. And everyone's, I guess, just relying on the firefighters to stop the blaze from edging towards the town.
I can look out from my bedroom window and I can see all the flames on the hill. So it's a bit crazy actually, but um, the firefighters are doing an amazing job. And this morning they've actually started creating a massive fire break um, on the property across the road from us. So I think that's quite um, reassuring really. We are taking practical precautions, taking down yeah. shade sails, taking in our furniture, because large pine needles are floating out of the sky. Mm. So when the wind changes, it'll be coming this direction. About an hour after evacuations started, police escorted some residents back into Pigeon Valley to collect pets. There wasn't time for anything less important. The fire was making its way out of the forest and onto the Pigeon Valley Flats, triggering the evacuation of the nearby Wakefield Township. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Roger Ball. I'm the Nelson Tasman Civil Defence uh, Group Controller. Uh, we are into day four of a declaration of local emergency regarding the Pigeon Valley fire. There is no prospect of the declaration of emergency being lifted at this time. The, the firefighters have been working in 12-hour shifts, some positioned on the front line of the fire in a bid to control the spread. Others dampen hot spots along the ridgeline, extinguishing sparks as they flare up, and some patrol at night, eyes peeled for any rogue flames. But as the fire continued to burn, the adrenaline started to dwindle, the exhaustion showing in the faces, voices and tone of those working around the clock to beat the fire. Yeah, it's not glamorous work by any chance. I mean, it's just, you know, dirty, you're soaked, you know, like, um, you know, from leaking hoses and you get tired from dragging hoses and climbing up and down over banks and things. So, yeah, there's nothing flash about it. It's just, you know, it's grunt work which has got to be done, otherwise they'll be back to square one again. The 150-strong contingent of fire and emergency staff were joined by 220 Defence Force personnel from around the country. They brought with them 23 military vehicles, two aircraft and two mobile kitchens. Defence Force chefs fed the hundreds of emergency workers. Over 100 police staff were also brought to Tasman, including 37 new officers who'd only just graduated. The area was heaving with those ready to help, packing out the region's accommodation. Many of them were volunteers. Well, I spent a lot of time at the Port Hills Fire as well, but you can't compare the two. This is just far greater here. Yeah. We uh, come out to the um, uh, start line at the uh, depot there at, uh, at uh, um, 6.30 in the morning and uh, we go back there at 6 o'clock at night. So, yeah, so um, have a meal, have a debrief and then maybe get back to your room maybe 8 o'clock, something like that. Yeah. yeah, you know, all sorts of things are bandied around about how people feel about us and, and some of the things, you know, they call us heroes but that doesn't sit too well with us because we don't see ourselves as that we just see ourselves as people that are willing to help out you know and, and um, you know try and make a difference and that's that's our job so yeah we just get stuck in and do it. Overhead helicopters ran on an endless rotation dumping monsoon buckets of water from the already low Waiiti river. Fire and emergency had to dig holes in the ground so they could use the water seeping through and even carted water in from swimming pools. The fire continued to grow, with its perimeter reaching 33 kilometres and over 2,400 hectares being affected. While crews fought the fire on the front line, many residents worried about what they were leaving behind. Top of mind for many, their animals. 
The thought of his animals being left without food or water was distressing for evacuated resident Ivan Neal, who turned out to a community meeting in Appleby demanding answers. Well, we're at the head of uh, Redwood Park Road, right up uh, the fire, when, when the fire came into uh, uh, Redwood Valley. Two more reds came right up behind our, our place, to, to, right on the fence line. We still haven't been able to get up there to feed animals since Tuesday, and uh, we've got chickens and stuff like that around the farm, but uh, haven't been able to feed, and that's pretty bloody stressful, really, you know, yeah. Yeah, how worried are you? I'm really worried. Yeah, yeah, we're, and we're stressing us out too, you know. So. Many of the evacuated properties were lifestyle blocks, and with some people having just minutes to get out, animals were begrudgingly left behind. But for the animals which could be evacuated, a temporary home for them and the owners was set up at the AMP showgrounds. So MPI's got a, uh, a lead responsibility for animal welfare and disasters, and so the reason we're here is to assist with uh, people that have got uh, issues with their animals. Wayne Ricketts is the Ministry for Primary Industries Animal Welfare Coordinator and was at the showgrounds from early on. So far we've only got horses here. Uh, but it's a wonderful setup, so we can take sheep, goats, llamas, um, what else is there? But yes, uh, so a wide range of species. A range which expanded as the days went on, <laughs> including over a hundred chickens. On the ground during the fire, Mr Ricketts didn't know how many animals had been lost except for around 60 sheep, which were euthanised after being badly burned. He says even when people can return, stock owners face a tough choice. So some people have lost their pasture, and supplementary feed if they've made any, uh, so those people have to make a decision on whether they stay or evacuate. Preferably would like them to stay, uh, but a lot of those people will have issues with water as well, uh, so pipes that have been damaged... Um, uh, etc. water tanks that have been damaged so uh, yeah, we're really just going to have to wait and see. But yeah, long term and especially with this weather obviously, you know, not expecting rain or growth, so yeah farmers are going to have to destock um, and, and make those hard calls uh, about feed. Hard calls and hard times ahead. Even with the fire in full force, some started worrying about the longer term economic damage to the region of Tasman. The situation was laid bare by Tasman's Deputy Mayor, Tim King, at a media conference as the ongoing toll on local industry started to emerge. Obviously the East Valley Sawmill has shut down uh, and that has a, you know, a very significant impact. I think the other thing is a huge amount of resource, as John was saying, that's been called in. A lot of truck drivers, a lot of heavy machinery operators, those people all have day jobs and they're, they're working in industries that are often time critical, in the horticultural industry particularly. Uh, so they, they aren't driving trucks for them. So yeah, those implications and these sort of events, the flow-on effects of the immediate event uh, can be as significant and as we go longer, those effects will become more and more significant. Murray Sturgeon is the Managing Director of Nelson Pine Industries and a Director of Tasman Pine Forest, which owns more than half the trees in the area covered by the blaze. He flew over the area earlier this week to see the extent of the damage. Some parts are devastated, some are scorched and some are 
still standing green, but we don't know what's underneath those uh, fires. And boy, that fire came very close to some of those beautiful estates in the uh, Redwood Valley, dangerously close, and to the Carter Sawmill at the East Valley. He says the trees in the area were aged between 9 and 20 years old, and the losses caused by the flames will kick in later when there's a gap in fully mature logs available. It's too early to estimate the cost of the losses, but if the trees were fully mature, they'd be valued at $5,000 per hectare. Tasman Pine owns 1,300 hectares, but not all the trees were mature, and some may have survived the flames. But he says logging contractors are already out of work. They're stood down for the moment, but they have daily meetings with the authorities, and uh, there would be a couple hundred people, I guess. And then there's, there's the transportation companies. But the conditions have been so dry, Murray Sturgeon says it's not surprising fire broke out. Nelson, we, we haven't had rain. We had a small uh, smattering of rain on Christmas morning, enough to spoil all the kids playing with the outside toys, but that was nothing. Uh, but prior to that, we haven't had rain since November, and uh, this whole area is tinder dry and in very explosive conditions. Nelson Pine Industries has been established 35 years, and we haven't seen the like of this fire in this region uh, in, those, in those years. And I hope we never see them again. Those dry conditions and the rural fires they can foster are likely a huge threat to New Zealand's forestry industry long term. For almost a decade, New Zealand researchers have warned of the heightened fire risk created by a changing climate and the implications for emergency services and rural industries. Grant Pierce is a fire scientist at the government's Forestry Research Institute, Scion, who studies rural fire risk. There's definitely a sense of worry that with climate change, we are going to see more of these events and they are going to have greater impacts. He says higher temperatures, stronger winds and less rain mean extreme fires like Tasman will become much more common. If we get more extreme fire weather days, so in this particular case we can talk about the number of days of very high and extreme forest fire danger. Uh, As that increases, that means that uh, the chances of a fire starting are higher. Uh, the, the risk of it spreading to become a large fire is greater and it has potential to do more damage in terms of impacts on both forestry resources but also people and property. Grant Pierce says that increased risk has featured in New Zealand's long-term emergency management planning for some time. I'm Alex Ashton and you're listening to an insight on the Tasman fires and the emergency response. Fire and Emergency New Zealand was formed in June 2017 and merged the country's 40 rural, urban, career and volunteer fire services. Speaking from its headquarters in central Wellington, National Manager Rural Kevin O'Connor describes the initial call-out. Initially we had an immediate response from the local people. They got out there, did a very quick assessment and... uh, Within about a half an hour they had some helicopters on the job and they had a call for further assistance and support. Then very quickly um, we had quite a contingent on the job um, and we've built it uh, over the first uh, day in particular but over the first two days we built that number up. And what we did was we, we put in what we call a national incident management team 
and uh, that National Incident Management team took over from the local team once they arrived, and their role is to take control and to make sure that all the resources that we need are on the job and that they're being deployed in the most effective way we can deploy them. Kevin O'Connor says while the Tasman fire is keeping everyone extremely busy, there are plenty more resources to roll out if the situation worsens. Maybe I'll put it this way. If, if we had another two fires like were happening at the peak of Nelson. If we had, if, so if we had three fires like that operating around the country, that would really stretch us. Uh, um, four would probably, we would then be looking um, probably internationally for some support, and we have arrangements um, in place with North America and with Australia to support us if we got to that situation. Um, but we were quite a long way from that position, and, uh, and we would have to have a number of events going before we got to that place. Looking beyond the current fire in Tasman, Kevin O'Connor says fire and emergency is well aware of the risk climate change poses. But he says they have time on their side, with at least a couple of decades before the situation significantly worsens. He says a group of New Zealand and Australian emergency services is starting to draw up a game plan for fighting larger fires more often. There's a development of an assessment tool that's underway at the moment and and that assessment tool will help agencies like ours and we'll be using it once once that tool's more available but that'll help us consider things like what are our training needs, what are the research questions, um, what leadership uh, do we require, what's the infrastructural requirements and equipment requirements for the future. And so so we're doing a lot of that thinking already, but that'll help us refine our thinking and and we'll build our organisation in that context. While planning is underway for what will be needed in the future, Agencies are also looking to past civil defence emergencies for ideas. A home has been destroyed and several others are threatened as two fires burn out of control on the Port Hills in Christchurch. One is centred on Early Valley Road near... Two years ago, a 2,000 hectare fire ravaged Christchurch's Port Hills and took more than two months to finally extinguish. The blaze destroyed nine houses, damaged five more and like the current fire, forced thousands to evacuate. Following the Port Hills fire and the devastating Kaikoura earthquake the year before, the then national government formed a technical advisory group, or TAG, to come up with better ways to manage emergencies. In August, it released its recommendations, including the development of so-called fly-in teams, groups of experts who'd fly in to manage disasters. The Civil Defence Minister, Chris Farfoy, says those fly-in teams will be in force later this year. After two or three, four days, um, the local seating groups um, start feeling the pinch and they certainly need some assistance. And that's what's happened, um, but it's been informal, so I'm glad that um, post that TAG review, um, the decisions that we've made to make sure we can bolster um, the CDM effort uh, is the right one. And um, we had some of the team who will lead the fly-in teams um, later this year down in uh, the EOC down there to have a look at how things are running and uh, to see how, when they do start, um, what's best to kind of tackle first. The government is also looking at a new emergency management centre and Chris Farfoy says the Tasman fires have only reinforced the need for accurate and up-to-date details for everyone. I think having really good information, I think I've learnt from the 
a small number of emergencies that we've had to deal with um, is absolutely key. Um, it can be a little bit frantic uh, in the early stages when things are emerging as to what information uh, you should get and that you want. Um, but I think having um, certainly to decision makers at central government the right information and coordination uh, of other agencies is key. The minister takes his hat off to all those involved, saying all the emergency teams worked their guts out. The fire uh, could have got a whole lot worse, um, but for the grace of God and uh, the weather playing ball and some amazing efforts um, from the fence crews, especially in the initial parts. Fire and Emergency also commissioned its own review of its response to Port Hills. The Australian investigators concluded that the then separate rural and urban fire authorities didn't communicate well enough with each other or the local community. But Fire and Emergency's Kevin O'Connor is confident they've done a better job in Tasman. What we learned from the Port Hills has, and, and the responses uh, that we have um, put in place, uh, the way we've responded to those recommendations is such that it's given us and put us in a really firm position for this fire and for other fires that might occur and for other emergencies that might occur. So we learned a lot uh, and we feel much better about the way things went this time than we did at the Port Hills fire. And, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't perfect, but we, but, it, but we, it was very much improved. What aspects could have been improved? Um, I think probably more, more around the internal, our own internal administration, but it, but it had no consequence in a material sense on the firefighting and the fire effort. Kevin O'Connor says there will be a full debrief once the ash settles from the Tasman blaze. But fire scientist Grant Pearce says the forward thinking needs to go well beyond fighting fires. He says the increased risk of huge, uncontrollable blazes is so high, the threat needs to be at the centre of housing development and city planning. That means looking at everything from what houses are made of to allowing space for emergency services and keeping buildings off the tops of hills basically increasing populations and more people moving out into these areas and lots of uh, sort of urban development. There's a need to sort of put fire right up there as one of the factors that we think about along with other natural hazards. Is it there at the moment? I think I'd have to say no to that. Um, Very few areas of the country currently have fire-specific planning considerations around things like defensible space, and it tends to be the the most fire-prone parts of the country. But other parts of the country where fire is a a lesser risk currently, you know, it's not really up there in terms of uh, being at the forefront of uh, planners uh, developing this information. As the last remaining residents return to their homes, life can begin to return to normal. Pleased to close the chapter on a frustrating, frightening and uncertain time, but grateful to have a home to return to. I have a strong faith, so I sleep at night. Because I know during the day, I've got to be wide awake and do the right thing. And, and there's good people out there. And I just know the, the, the dozer operators that have been operating around the back. And I know the firemen. And um, I just don't, I'm in good hands. That programme was written and presented by Alex Ashton with additional reporting by Ben Strang. If you'd like to podcast some more long-form journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz forward slash insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Insight explores why Huawei now finds itself at the centre of a global row. 
I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Join us again next time. <laughs>